Our Old Testament reading today is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The word of the Lord. Psalm 29. Ascribe unto the Lord, O you mighty. Ascribe unto the Lord worship and strength. Give the Lord his honor to the Lord that commands the waters. It is the glorious God that makes the thunder. It is the Lord that rules the sea. The voice of the Lord is mighty in his burning. The voice of the Lord is the glorious voice. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedar trees. Indeed, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. Indeed, the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord brings the deer to bring forth young, and stirs the forest fair. In his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits above the floodwaters, and the Lord remains king forever. The Lord shall give strength to his people. The Lord shall give his Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. A reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. 
And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. First living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle, flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel lesson this morning comes from John chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Jesus speaking. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I do not say these things to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is actually to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because it does not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I am going to be with the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world stands judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them yet. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you all things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. So this is Trinity Sunday. If you think of... A whole calendar year. Think of it like a wheel with, I don't know, 52 spokes. But, or think of it like a circle. 
And the, the first half of the circle would be from Advent, four weeks before Christmas, till last week. And the first half of the year is, one way to think of it is like the story of God's redemption. So we have all of these events in the, the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We go from Advent to Christmas, Epiphany. We have Lent, where Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem and through his suffering walks toward the cross. Then we have Easter, this glorious resurrection of Jesus, where he was dead and then he wasn't dead anymore. And because he was raised for our justification, God has inaugurated this resurrection life right now here on earth that we get to participate in. Two weeks ago, we had Ascension, where we celebrate Jesus rising up into heaven. And then last week was Pentecost, the event that Jesus was talking about in our gospel here, where the Holy Spirit comes and is poured out on all the believers. And the, the Christian church explodes outwards across the Middle East and the Mediterranean. So that's the first half of the year, the story of God's redemption. The second half of the year, which we just entered into, think of it like the story of God's church. Because the focus and the, the, the focus of the, the weeks kind of shift more away from, I mean, we're always going to talk about Jesus. We're always going to talk about what he's done. But the, the emphasis then becomes, okay, in light of that, how then should we live? In light of that, what, is, what, what are we to do? And so in this second half of the year, we really focus on the work of the Holy Spirit in, in and among the lives of believers and our mission out into the world to be salt and light to a waiting world. So why do we start this second half of the year with this very kind of weird feast day, Trinity Sunday. A couple reasons. One, because this is actually who God is, right? Like this is, God has revealed himself in the world to everyone, but God has primarily revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And so in the scriptures, it says that God is three persons in one being. And I'm going to say that so many times today, and if I get it wrong, it's going to be embarrassing, because that's literally a heresy, but that's fine. It's three persons in one being. And look, either there's one of two ways, there's one of two things is true. Either this is a very strange Bronze Age tribal religion from the Middle East that somehow, through a series of events, got picked up across the Roman Empire and carried to the whole world. Either that or it's true, right? Like there's no, there, there's really no middle road. Either this stuff is true or it isn't. So if it isn't, then I really should be golfing right now. Like what are we doing here? But if it is true, then we should think about it and investigate it and say, okay, what does this mean? What can this possibly mean about the God who created everything? So the reason that we talk about the Trinity at the beginning of this second half of the year, two reasons. One, as I said, because this is who God is. And so if that's who God is, then he is worth knowing as fully as we can. Um, this is an incredibly incomplete analogy, but, but think about it this way. Or I was thinking about it this way this week. Um, my wife Elizabeth and I met in 1991 for one school year. And we were friendly, but we weren't friends. And then we really didn't talk for like a quick 25 years or so. And we reconnected in 2016. And we fell in love over the phone in 2016. And it happened incredibly fast. 
from, from, the, from the day of our first phone call to the day we got married was a little more than eight months. And we talked a ton during that time, during those eight months. On the phone, she was still living in Atlanta, I was living in D.C. And then we talked in person every day when she moved to the same city that I did as we were getting ready to be married. But it was only eight months. So you can imagine that after we got married, in the ensuing almost six years now, I've learned a lot more about her. I've learned a lot about who she is. I've learned about what she cares about. I've learned about her identity. But when I hear those things, I don't just reject them. I don't just say, no, I want to go back to the 2016 Elizabeth that I knew, because that was simpler. Like that was, I didn't know as much, and so I didn't have to think about as much. No, the more that I learn about her, the more deeply I can love her, the more deeply I can serve her, the more deeply I can, I, the, the more excited I get about her. So that's one of the reasons why we talk about the Trinity on a day like this, because if this is who God is, then the more that we can know him, the more we can love him. But here's where, here's where that analogy breaks down and, and kind of seems trite. Elizabeth didn't create me, but, but God did. And so the God who actually created me, I should want to worship him and praise him and serve him kind of as fully as I can. And so God revealing himself as, as being three, three persons in one being doesn't happen at the very beginning of the Bible. Like it doesn't, you know, we got Bible, table of contents, Genesis 1. He doesn't come out right away and say, hi, I'm God, and I'm three persons in one being, and you're going to spend the next 2,000 years trying to figure out what that means. It's a slow process of revelation over time. In the very beginning, God made it very clear that he was one. There is only one God. This stands in stark contradiction to every other religion around them at the time that had a river god and a dirt god and a sun god and a moon god. And God is saying, no, 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 there's just one of me. And that's true. But then over the course of Scripture, as this progressive revelation unfolds and as his plan of redemption becomes clear, he reveals more of who he is. He reveals more of who he is, not just, not just in what he does, but he revo- reveals more of, of who, what, what his internal relationship with himself is like, if that makes any sense. We see this most clearly, I think, at the very beginning of the New Testament. Beginning of the New Testament, in in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke, Jesus has been born, has become an adult, and is getting baptized. And he goes into the River Jordan, and John the baptizer baptizes him, and as Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens part, and a voice, an audible voice from heaven, says, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. And at that same moment, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven in the form of a dove and hovers over Jesus. And so at that moment, you see all three people of this, this triune God, this Godhead, together with one another, in community with one another. So the more we can learn about God, the more fully we can worship him. But the second reason that we talk about the Trinity, especially at the start of this second half of the church year, is actually so that we can understand ourselves better and understand the world better. If God created the world, then then the nature of who that creator is can probably tell us a good bit about his creation. And it can tell us about a good bit about what part we play in that creation as his image bearers. 
right? Human beings are the, only, are the only thing in the entire world that are said to be the image bearers of God. We are the icon of God. Now, I'm not three persons in one being, and neither are you. But what can the fact that we are created in his image, what can the Trinity tell us about how we are to be in this world? And this isn't just something for, like, seminary classes or, or catechism classes. This isn't just, like, dry, dusty doctrine stuff. This actually matters. Um, in, the, in the field of philosophy, there's a, a common problem known as the problem of the one and the many. This is something that philosophers have been kicking around for a very long time, like 500 BC. There were two philosophers named um, Parmenides and Heraclitus. Parmenides said that the universe was fundamentally one. It was unified, it was one thing. And, and Heraclitus said, no, no, the universe is fundamentally diverse. It's many, many, many things. And they had this back and forth. And so it's, it's fundamentally one thing, it's about being. And the other one said, no, it's fundamentally many things, it's about becoming. But the problem is neither one of those two things satisfies what we know the world to be. Because if everything is just one, if there's unity above all else, if everything is one, then the universe is a static constant. And all the particulars between you and me and an apple and a door and a tree are just obliterated and meaningless. And we can't even have a conversation about things anymore because we can't distinguish one thing from another. But if the whole world is nothing but individual particularities and, and, and diversity, then then we can't know anything because we have no confidence that what I say as the number two or the color red is the same thing that you say as the number two or the color red. And so human conversation is out the window. Knowledge and learning is gone. And so you have this problem of, okay, is it one or is it many? And then they work that back up to, okay, is the creator of the universe one or many? Well, guess what? What could explain the tension between the one and the many? And how can it be that both of these things are true at the same time? The only answer that anyone has ever come up with is, is Christianity, is the triune God of Scripture. God alone, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the, the three-in-one God, is the only thing that, that can fully explain this paradox that the universe is one and many. And so the God who made all things who is both at the same time three and one. That's the basis for everything that we see, for everything that we can talk about, for everything that we experience and think. The Trinity, three persons in one being. And, and it is a paradox, right? Like it sounds ridiculous. It's like trying to draw a four-dimensional cube, especially in this very post-enlightenment, rationalist, materialist age that we live in, where we've decided that we can't really talk about anything unless it's fully quantifiable and identifiable and observable. But we are always and will always be the creature, and he is the creator. And so the creature can't really know anything. It can't fully know the creator, aside from what he has shown himself to us, as we can understand it. Uh, there's a guy named... Bishop Fitzsimmons Allen, I'm sorry, Bishop Fitzsimmons Allison, and, and what he said about the mystery of the Trinity is, we, it is okay that this is mysterious. It is okay that I can explain the Trinity to a young child, and the young child will kind of go, all right, but then you explain it to an adult, and they're like, wait, that literally makes no sense at all. I don't have any categories for that. But that's, that, that's the mystery of it. 
And we can be okay with the mystery of it. Um, Fitzsimmons Allison said that we also don't fully understand the mystery of birth or the mystery of why our stomach doesn't simply eat itself at some point. But people don't stop having kids and people don't stop eating just because they've, we've never fully understood these mysteries. And so it's okay to live with this idea of, of mystery. The triune God, three persons in one being. And this word, this word Trinity, you'll occasionally hear people say, well, that word's not found in Scripture. And it isn't. There's a lot of words that aren't found in the Bible. Bible being one of the words that isn't found in the Bible. But the idea of the, the Trinity was a term that was first, first coined by a church father named Tertullian in about the 4th century. And it was the idea had existed beforehand, just the word didn't exist. But the idea had been there since the very beginning, since the writing of the New Testament. Because all throughout the Bible we see little places where God is revealing himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. At the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go out into the world and make more disciples, he says, Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But even back at the very, very beginning, even back in Genesis 1, Verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And so in that, in those few verses, we see this picture of God the Father creating. But he doesn't create with his hands, and he doesn't create just by thinking something into existence. He creates it by a word. He creates it by speaking. In the Gospel of John, John refers to Jesus as the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this was not, a, this was not an uncommon thing at the time. God, being, God the Son being called the Word. So in Genesis 1, God the Father creates. How does he create? He creates by the Word, God the Son. And in that same verse, we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the surface of the creation, interacting with it covering it. So these are just a few pictures of where God is revealing himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and having this perfect communion among himself. Three persons of God in perfect harmony. And we see pictures of three, pers three persons of God pouring out love for one another. That interplay, that kind of weaving of the three persons of the Godhead. Some people have, have called it the divine dance. C.S. Lewis put it that way. He said, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing or a static force. And he's not even one person. He is a dynamic, pulsating activity. He himself is a drama within himself. And then he said, if you won't think me too irreverent, he is actually a kind of dance. Then later on, the theologian Cornelius Plantiga said that, that each person of this trinity harbors the other two at the center of his own being and his own vision. So there's a constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person of the trinity encircling the others. God's interior life, therefore, exists and overflows, and this is key for, how it, for, for what it says about us. God's internal life 
exists and overflows with self-giving love for the other. And that's the pattern. That's the pattern that we see played out in Scripture. That's the pattern that we see played out in Christ's church. And that's the ideal that we are supposed to carry out into the world. This dance that God is doing among himself, never out of step, always in perfect harmony. It's the heart of Christianity. And we know that all three persons of this trinity are involved in his creation. We know that all three persons of the trinity are involved in the redemption of the world. And we see it in places like in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, the second half of Romans chapter 8. Let me read a little bit here. Romans chapter 8 is one of the best like crescendo moments in the entire Bible. Paul has taken seven chapters of Romans and he's building out this theology of how incapable mankind is of saving himself. The reality that we live in a fallen world, the reality of evil and sin, and the reality of people being at war with one another and saying, no, I'm the best. No, actually, I'm the best. And Paul is basically takes seven chapters and just levels everybody and says that nobody is worthy of being in the presence of God. But then he starts to build out this gospel of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so chapter 8 starts with Paul saying, there is therefore no condemnation. No matter how sinful you are, no matter how wicked you are, no matter what you've done in your life, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it builds from there as he's talking about the grace that God has shown to, to his people. And the whole book is, is just dripping at this point with Trinity language. Because it's not just Jesus, or it's not just the Holy Spirit, or God the Father. It's all of them. In Romans 8, verses 14 through 17, it's really the heart of the passage. And it says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you would live in fear again. But no, the Spirit that you received brought about your adoption. And by Him, by that Spirit, we can now cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit, that is kind of with our, with our soul, with our being. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are actually heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, entitled to all the benefits that God the Father is going to pour out on God the Son, Jesus Christ. So God, Paul is basically saying that God has invited us into this dance that is always going on in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That this self-giving love where the Father gives to the Son, the Son gives to the Spirit, the Spirit gives to the Father and back again. That's the dance that we are invited into. And, that, and in that we see a picture of how God has saved us. There's Trinitarian theology and Trinitarian language in the redemption of the world through Christ. Yes, Christ was the, the God-man. He was the second person of the Trinity who literally became a physical human being. The other two didn't do that. He did. But he never stopped being God. And he was always in perfect communion with the other two persons. But it was God the Father's plan of redemption. It was God the Son who carried it out. It was God the Holy Spirit who empowered it and raised Christ from the dead. He sacrificed himself for us so that we wouldn't have to receive the, the just punishment for the sins that each and every one of us has done. 
But instead, not just that we would get a clean slate, but we would actually be adopted into the family of God, that we would be co-heirs with Christ, that we, would be, that we would be in line for all of the blessings that God the Father is going to give His own Son. And so then God the Holy Spirit joins with, with our spirit, with, with our soul, with our heart, whatever you want to call it. God the Holy Spirit joins with us and testifies to us that when we are in Christ, we are beloved children of God. And our, and, our, and our minds and our hearts can then cry out that same truth. But then finally, th- this idea of, of the Trinity, and this idea of being co-heirs with Christ and adopted sons and daughters of God, this is not just about who we are today, it's about who God has made us to be. And the reason I keep pointing this way is because that's where the door is. Because God did not save us just so that we could be saved. God saved us for a purpose and a mission. And the mission that he gave us is Trinitarian as well. So the adoption that we have into God's family is not just for our own life, it's for the life of the world as well. When we gather together to, to live out this life, that, that, that this creating and sustaining and rescuing and redeeming God has actually given to us freely of his own choice. We are joining this dance that is already in progress and that the center of the dance is the Trinity. And then we get to add our steps around him, as clumsy as they're going to be, and as many times as we're going to fall or trip or do the wrong thing. We don't have to worry because we're not at the center. We're not the ones calling the, we're not the, ones calling the steps of the dance. He is. But we get to come in and participate with him. So this is not just a truth for, for in here. right? This is not just... This is not just something that we can talk about in the worship service of the church. And you all are sitting there being quiet, and I'm up here in my white, nice white robe. And then after this, we'll all leave and we'll go off and live our lives. Like, there's, a, there's been a, a, a terrible thing that's happened in the, in the church, well, since the very beginning. But one of, the, one of the good things that the Reformation did was it reminded people that all of our life is worship. Not just this, not just what we do here. Our entire lives are a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and worship to God. And so the, the Reformation broke down the barrier between, between church worship and our Monday through Saturday life. But we forget it. And we forget it over and over again. And so there's been creeping in in the last hundred years, at least in this country, this idea of like a private faith and a public life. And so we can talk about really weird things like the Trinity, like God is three, but he's one. And we can talk about how Jesus was God and then was also a man and then is still God and yet somehow still a man and he's going to come back and he's going to have a sword sticking out of his mouth. That's in Revelation, by the way. Um, We can talk about these things in here because it doesn't really matter for our life out there. But that's not what the Bible says and that's that's not how we're supposed to live. And so the idea that God is three in one matters not just today, not just from roughly 10 o'clock to 11.30 on a Sunday. It matters all the time. Because it shows us a model of what self-giving love is. And it shows us a model of what perfect, perfect community is. One of my all-time favorite writers, a guy named Sam Albury, he, he kind of irreverently refers to the Trinity as the party that never ends. And he's not wrong. It had no beginning, it has no end. The Father did not create the Son, the Son did not create the Spirit. He has always been and he always will be. 
these three divine persons in perfect community with each other. And he is in perfect agreement with himself, and he's in perfect love with himself. Each person glorifying the other two through their actions, and that's what we strive for. We're never going to get there, because we're not perfect. We're not the creator, we're the creature. But that's what we strive for. Perfect love, pouring out ourselves for one another. And it's this life of, of love for one another and love for God, this worship and reverence that we then bring out into the world that empowers us to go out and do the work that he has given us to do. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote thousands of pages trying to, to get the doctrines of God just right, Thomas Aquinas finally said at the end of all his writing, he said that when we deeply consider the Trinity, when we consider the, the nature of our three-in-one creator, what else can we do except fall to our knees in worship and joyful praise of who this God is? Our God is three and he is one. So he has holy communion before time began. He had holy communion at creation. He had holy communion when Jesus was born and lived and died and was resurrected. He has holy communion now in and amongst himself, and he invites us into that, and he invites us to go tell the world about that. Holy communion forever. That's who our God is. Now normally, right now in our service, normally, the sermon ends, and then there's a moment or two of silence, and then we move on to the next part of our service, which is typically either the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. But on Trinity Sunday, we do something a little bit different. Um, there are three main creeds that the church has used since about the year uh, 150-ish. Uh, that's when the first one was written. And then the second one was written in about 325, and the third one was 400 and something. But so there's three main creeds that the church confesses. Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and then this one, which is the Athanasian Creed. And if you've never heard of that, you're not alone. There's a lot of people who have it. Um, the Athanasian Creed is only done on Trinity Sunday. And the reason it's only done on Trinity Sunday is because it is way too much fun and we shouldn't do it the rest of the time because then church would simply be too fun and you wouldn't think about anything else. Um, that is not true. The reason we only do it one Sunday is because it is very long. It is like, no kidding, longity long, long. Um, but it does a really good job of reminding us about the Trinity. It's why we do it today. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but none of them are the other. And, and so it's named after this guy named, named St. Athanasius, who was one of the early guardians of, of Christian faith and Christian doctrine. And he was the one who passionately defended the idea of the Trinity against the various heresies that were coming up at the time. And the Athanasian Creed, um, it's kind of stark. Like, it starts out with this. Whosoever would be saved, before all things, it is necessary that he hold to the Catholic faith. Catholic there meaning, in the original meaning, uh, universal. Whoever does not keep this faith, whole and undefiled, will doubtless perish everlastingly. What that means is, according to the Athanasian Creed that the church has always affirmed, if you don't believe in this God who has revealed himself in the Bible, if you don't believe in this triune God, 
You are outside the bounds of God's adopted family. You are outside the bounds of his resurrection people. And those who are outside the bounds of his adopted family are going to be judged for their actions, as we all are. It just happens that those who, are, who have placed their allegiance in Christ are going to be judged. I'm going to be judged for all the terrible stuff that I've done, and it's a lot. But when I am, I'm going to be able to plead the blood of Christ. Because it's all I can do. I can't say, well, I tried to do as many good things as bad things and tried to balance the scales. That's not going to matter. All I'm going to be able to do is say, I plead the blood of Christ. He died for me. So, this is a very stark statement to make in a, in a day like today, to be so black and white about this. But, but it's important to be clear not only about what we believe, but about the eternal consequences of not believing these things. And so that brings me to my last point. And I want to be really clear about this. Don't say this stuff if you don't believe it. Like, seriously. This, this church service, all church services, are primarily, primarily for Christians, but not exclusively. And the hope is, at every church service, there's going to be somebody here who just is going to look at this and say, yeah, this is just, this is just nonsense. I mean, this is just silly and wrong. And, and if that's you today, great. I am so glad that you're here. But don't feel any pressure to affirm anything that you don't believe with all your heart. And so, even though you may have never heard this before, I would invite you to stand. And, if you believe these things, confess the truth that Christ's one church has believed for over 2,000 years. And so, we will say this whole thing together. Whoever desires to be saved should, above all, hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. Is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, there is but one eternal being. So there are, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet, there are not three almighty beings, there is but one Almighty Being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, 
So Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. One Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or smaller than another. But in their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their Trinity in their unity and their unity in their Trinity. Anyone, therefore, who desires to be saved must think thus about the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now, this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, born before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet he is not two, but one Christ. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity unto himself. He is one, not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. Is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. He suffered for our salvation, he descended to hell, he arose again on the third day from the dead. He ascended to heaven, he sits at the Father's right hand, God Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting for their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. That was great practice. Now let's do it for real.